please be seated. And if you if your Bible with you, uh, please turn to First John chapter one. Uh, that's a sermon outline on the screen that will help you follow along with me this morning. COVID-19 is affecting the way people think about attending church, isn't it? At one end of the spectrum, there are those who really do miss gathering together on Sundays for worship service. They're just dying to get back together with church members, sing songs, listen to the sermon, partake of the communion. And at the other end of the spectrum, there are some who are starting to think about what is church and why is there a need to be at church on a Sunday morning? Well, why not just put together a few favorite songs or hymns uh, from Hillsong or from the Gettys, recite the liturgy from the Book of uh, Common Prayer, and listen to sermon from a popular preacher like Tim Keller or John Piper. Isn't this having the best of all worlds? In other words, why do I need to be in church? Well, this morning, there may be some of you who may be thinking this way, but my sense is that there aren't many here because you're tuning in right now. But these thoughts feel legitimate and they'll be lingering in people's minds. And especially with the Sunday worship service still very much online, uh, people do get Zoom fatigue. And so over time, while we will still come for the church service, our commitment can somewhat weaken. The number of times that we come for the online worship service may drop. And so instead of attending weekly, we may start to attend two or three times in a month. Uh, the other times we may perhaps attend another church service to try it out or perhaps have in mind to watch a recorded version of the service later in the week instead of worshiping together on a Sunday morning. Or perhaps we may rationalize in our minds that if we had listened to a Tim Keller sermon that weekend, we have sort of checked the church box for the week. Or perhaps just not attend at all. I think a lower level of commitment to attending church is possibly a more likely scenario for an increasing number of people. Well, it may well be the situation for us here at Christ the King, because if you look at the number of participants each week, we, we had about 55 in March or April when we first started. Well, this past month or so, it's been hovering at just above 40. And um, well, I like to think that the lower number today is because tomorrow's the public holiday, but then I could be wrong. Well, word could have gone out that I was preaching. Well, but clearly the number of participants have dropped. How should we as a church then think about these things? Well, with this question at the back of our minds, I'd like to dive into our passage today. I think the prologue to 1 John, the first four verses, has something helpful to say to us in a time like this. But before we can tackle the passage itself, let's understand a little of the background as to why John the Apostle wrote this letter. We're not told who John wrote this letter to, but Bible scholars believe that the Apostle John was in Ephesus when he wrote it. Uh, John probably relocated there during the time of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. His readers were likely to be the church in Ephesus and possibly other churches in that area. But at that time, it would appear there were false teachers who were causing some controversy. 
they were undermining the message of the gospel and they have separated themselves and their followers from the church and caused division in the church. Well, we see that in chapter 2, verse 26 of 1 John, where John writes, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And in chapter 2, verse 19, he writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what might these false teachings be? The consensus among the commentators is that it was possibly an early form of Gnosticism, which was a belief that spirit was good, but matter was evil, and that salvation was to be found in a higher, uh, more esoteric spiritual knowledge. Well, not everyone clearly will have this knowledge, but if you have it, you were enlightened and saved. You see, Gnosticism was very much rooted in ancient Greek philosophy. And as the church spread towards Greece, it started to encounter this way of thinking more and more. But obviously, if the central tenet of Gnosticism is that matter was evil, it would be difficult for them to believe what is at the very heart of our Christian faith, that God would come down to earth and be fully human in a physical body. That would go against all their teachings. And so Gnostics would deny the physical death, uh, uh, resurrection, life of Jesus. And it is into these circumstances that John wrote the prologue. And it is a very unusual way to start a letter. Unlike letters in those times, uh, take the ones uh, from Paul, for instance, we see no personal greetings here, uh, no personal references at all. John was clearly keen to get straight to the point. And his very first sentence in the letter is a long one in Greek. In fact, it takes up the first three verses in our ESV translation. But the focus of these three verses is clear. John puts Jesus right at the center of what he wants to proclaim to his readers. He wants to make it clear that he has personally witnessed the reality of Jesus' incarnation. He wants to make it clear that Jesus is truly life. And so verse 1 begins with that which was from the beginning. Uh, and, and that should sound somewhat familiar, especially when we see John calling Jesus the word of life at the end of that verse. If you remember in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John starts in almost the same way in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And here in 1 John, the Apostle John is telling his readers that Jesus is from the beginning. He was before anything else was. But there's more to this word of life besides the fact that he was from the beginning. You see, John was keen to dispel any thoughts that this word of life might be some sort of a spirit or some sort of a force. And that's why he goes on to emphasize, we've heard him, we've seen him with our eyes. We've looked upon him and touched him with our hands. The we here probably refers to John and the other disciples who were with Jesus. And so John is making very clear that he has personally witnessed the reality of Jesus' incarnation, his, his physical body. It wasn't some stuff that he heard from a friend or from a neighbor. He has personally heard 
He's personally seen and physically touched the word of life. And the phrase that he used, looked upon, uh, it's not just another word for see. It connotes a sense of an intentional and continuous gazing and contemplation of Jesus. And then the word touched, it's not just another word for a brief contact. It has a sense of groping or, or feeling after in order to find, like when you know, we are in the dark. Can you see here the progression in the level of confidence John wants to give his readers regarding his account as an eyewitness? Heard, seen, looked upon, touched. But that's more. Verse 2 tells us how that was possible. Well, think of verse 2 as the parenthesis. It is intended to provide us with more information about this life without distracting us from John's train of thought. John tells us they were able to witness only because this life appeared, because this life was made manifest to them. This life is also what John now calls eternal life. Well, it is obvious what John is doing here. He's trying to draw a clear line between the philosophy of the Gnostics and that of Christianity. He's making the point emphatically that the material, the physical, is not evil. The word of life, Jesus was made manifest, incarnated in physical form. Exactly what the Gnostics say should not happen. And John bears witness to that. And because he is a witness, he wants, us, uh, he wants to make sure others know it too. The Apostle John, like all the other disciples, they, they want to spread the good news about Jesus. And that's why he tells us we are testifying, we are proclaiming, and we are writing about this Jesus, the eternal life. Well, the word testify in Greek means to bear witness, and there's a legal nuance to this. And it was often used for testimonies given in a court. Well, generally, you've got to be an eyewitness of the event first before you can bear witness. And that is why John keeps reminding us that he is a credible eyewitness for Jesus, because he has personally heard, seen, and touched Jesus firsthand. And then next, we're told that this news about the eternal life is proclaimed. But what to proclaim is not just about providing a verbalized, testimony of what he has heard or seen and touched. Well, in order to proclaim, you must be commissioned. And that's exactly what happened to John and the disciples. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 27, Jesus had earlier commanded his disciples, and you also will bear witness because you have seen, you've been with me from the beginning. John knows he's bearing witness because he has been commissioned to do so by Jesus. And of course, finally, in verse 4, this news about the eternal life is passed on through John's writing. And this is how the gospel comes to us 2,000 years later. The apostles bear witness to what they had experienced, they proclaim it, and then they wrote it down for our benefit today. Now, who then is this Jesus that John is proclaiming? What we can't miss is that this Jesus is life. Uh, the word life here is essentially employed as a metonymy. A metonymy is, is the act of referring to something using a word that describes one of its qualities or features. For instance, we may use the word Hollywood as a metonymy for celebrity culture or, or Wall Street for the financial sector. 
And so in a sense, life or eternal life is a metonymy for Jesus. He so personifies life, that sense of life with him and life in him that is so eternal and abundant and full that calling him eternal life makes sense. Well, in Greek, eternal life is not just life in terms of the length of life or like how many years a person may live for. It also connotes a quality of life, uh, a quality of fullness, not lacking anything. And eternal life is also not just about life after death. Rather, it is about life right now. Because if you are a Christian, you have started living the eternal life. Because eternal life is not just about an existence. It's about a person. It's about a relationship. It's about Jesus and our relationship with him. So why is John writing this letter? What is his purpose? The answer is given in verses 3 and 4. And in these two verses, there are two linking words. So that it, it tells you the purpose for John's writing. John has two purposes. The first purpose is in verse 3, koinonia, which is translated as fellowship here. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The Greek word koinonia means to have something in common. And this koinonia or fellowship is about a relationship that brings together something in common. In fact, in some uh, Bible translations, koinonia is translated here as a sharing of a common life. In classical Greek, for instance, it's often an expression for the marriage relationship. The fellowship here does not mean some uh, Christian social activity that we may participate in, like catching up over coffee or attending some activities in campus ministry groups or going for perhaps a woman's fellowship meeting. These are important, no doubt, but they are not what fellowship means here. Over here, fellowship is about a spiritual relationship that forms the basis of true Christian community. It's about a community that shares a common life in Christ. And that's what we are supposed to take away when we read about the first Christians in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when we are told, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These early disciples were sharing a common life together. And this fellowship or sharing a common life with other believers is not just about a horizontal relationship. There's also a vertical dimension to it. In fact, our horizontal relationship with one another is possible only because of our vertical relationship with God. And so in a sense, Christianity is not like any other club or social grouping, like a golf club, for instance, or a gym membership, for instance. Our fellowship is not just over any common cause or purpose. What makes it uniquely Christian is that we have a vertical relationship as well. And this vertical relationship is with God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. And so in Christian fellowship, unless I have this vertical fellowship with God, I will not be able to have a horizontal fellowship with you. And when I have a horizontal fellowship with you, it helps strengthen my vertical fellowship with God. Well, J.I. Packer puts it this way. 
Fellowship with God then is the source from which fellowship among Christians springs. And fellowship with God is the end to which Christian fellowship is a means. So fellowship with God is indeed both the foundation and the objective of our fellowship with one another. And this is consistent with what John wrote earlier in the gospel. In John chapter 17, verse 21, he records Jesus' high priestly prayer to God the Father for his disciples. Jesus prayed that they, the disciples, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So, properly understood, this koinonia, this fellowship implies salvation. Why? Because this fellowship involves the removing uh, of the hostility between God and humans, which is what makes the vertical fellowship possible. It, it goes further because it also removes the hostility between humans and humans, which is what makes the horizontal fellowship possible. And isn't this exactly what the gospel is all about? This is good news for us. And that's why John was keen to testify and proclaim what he has personally witnessed. Because you cannot have fellowship with God without knowing Christ. You most certainly cannot know Christ and be part of a Christian fellowship without receiving and believing the apostolic testimony. And this goes against what the Gnostics have been teaching. For them, salvation was found only in a higher spiritual knowledge, and not everyone will have that knowledge. This means that fellowship with many people will not be possible, since it is only an exclusive group who will be able to attain to this special knowledge. Hence, the Apostle John's emphasis on fellowship refutes that right from the start. John wants to correct the false teaching of the Gnostics that had caused a rift in the church. Well, the second purpose why John was testifying and proclaiming is joy. In verse 4, John writes, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John wants both his and his reader's joy to be complete, to be full, to be overflowing, so that nothing will be lacking in their experience of joy. Joy complete because they are no longer misled by false teachers. Joy complete because they believe Jesus came in flesh into this world to give us eternal life. Joy complete because they possess this eternal life and are in fellowship with both God and fellow believers. And that's why John wrote this letter. And the joy he has in mind is not what we would commonly think of as happiness. You see, happiness is a state of mind, a, a feeling of pleasure or, or contentment or satisfaction that is very much uh, dependent on external circumstances. The joy that John writes about is much deeper and richer in meaning. It's a kind of joy that allows Paul to write to the church in Philippi, telling them, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And this he writes while he's been chained and put in prison. We see that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. It's a kind of joy that is willing to sell everything in order to buy that one pearl of great value or the field with the great treasure. We see that in the parable that Jesus told 
in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, 45. It's a kind of joy that can go through unjust suffering and yet rejoices to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. We see that in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. It's a kind of joy that can be persecuted and forsaken, crushed and afflicted, and yet consider all these things as light and momentary affliction that prepares us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. This is real joy, independent of circumstances. And John is writing to the church so that together the joy can be complete. Now, what does all these mean for us today? Well, I can think of a number of implications. Well, I just want to take time right now to focus on two. Firstly, we must carry on the task of proclaiming the gospel. John testified and proclaimed the Lord Jesus Christ to the people of his times. From the proclamation of the apostles, the gospel would spread geographically from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It was spread also across the centuries. It is by the Holy Spirit and through the faithful men and women over the years that we are able to hear the gospel today. And the work continues. The commission to proclaim remains valid. There are many people today who still have not heard the gospel. Many people whom we know. The task was still before us. So is it our desire to proclaim the gospel? Are we equipped? For the task, we ask the Holy Spirit to give us hearts that will obey the commission to proclaim. Well, secondly, we must not settle for superficial fellowship in our church. Joy Packer again, he writes, We often say that we have had fellowship when all we mean is that we have taken part in some Christian social activities. And when Packer mentions social activities, what he has in mind is, uh, having coffee with a Christian, hiking in perhaps uh, you know, campus ministries, having potluck meal at a church and so on. And then Packer continues, but we ought not to talk in these terms. The fact that we share social activities with other Christians does not in itself imply that we have fellowship with them. To say this is not, of course, to deny that there may be a place for these activities. Our point is simply that to equate these activities with fellowship and fellowship with them is an abuse of Christian language. And it is a dangerous abuse. It makes for self-deception. It fools us into thinking that we are thriving on fellowship when all the time our souls may be starving for lack of it. It is not a good sign when a person recognizes no difference between sucking sweets and eating a square meal. Equally, it is not a good sign when Christians recognize no difference between social activities in Christian company and fellowship. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. It denotes something that is vital to a Christian's spiritual health and central to the church's true life. It is of the first importance, therefore, that we should be clear in our minds as to what Christian fellowship really is. Well, what Packer is saying here is that spiritual fellowship is not a luxury, but a necessity vital to our spiritual growth and health. 
Christian fellowship on a horizontal level involves both a sharing together of our common life in Christ and a sharing with one another what God has given us. And one of the most important things that we can share with one another is a spiritual truth that God has been teaching us that might be of help to fellow believers. And so Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 tells us, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, by encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day is drawing near. The command not to neglect to meet together is fulfilled, not simply by showing up in church on Sunday morning. It is fulfilled only when we meet, and when we do meet, we are able to encourage, to spur, and to stimulate one another. And for most people, attending worship services on Sunday just don't provide sufficient opportunity to do that. And by the way, this is not to lessen in any way the importance of coming to church on Sunday. There are many good reasons why we need to come to church on Sunday. And one key reason is because this is the time when we can learn from the teaching of God's word. But what Hebrews 10 is commanding is more than that. It's requiring the time that we meet to be opportunities for mutual admonishment and encouragement. And to achieve that, there's a need for greater intentionality to make it happen. There's a need for greater vulnerability to allow others to speak into our lives. There's a need for greater availability to be willing to set aside time to be available for others. And there's a need for greater generosity to share in tangible ways, ways to encourage those who are in need. As someone wrote, the Christian community is not some passing association of people who share common sympathies for a cause. Nor is it an academy where an intellectual consensus about God is discovered. Christian community is partnership in experience. It is the common living of people who have a shared experience of Jesus Christ. They talk about this experience, they, each, they urge each other to grow more deeply in it, and they discover that through it, they begin to build a life together unlike any shared life in the world. Isn't that what we all desire? And so how will that happen at Christ the King? Well, here's where our small groups and our one-to-one Bible reading groups come in. Now, I'll be the first to say that these are not perfect. But I think our small groups and our one-to-one Bible reading groups are pretty good places to start if you want to experience such fellowship. In fact, they were designed intentionally to afford us the time and space to develop and deepen relationships, to share spiritual truths that we are learning, to support one another when we stumble, to care for one another in need, to hold each other accountable for a spiritual walk, to pray for one another, to experience a measure of what shared lives may look like. So do sign up for them if you are not already in a small group or involved in a one-to-one Bible reading group. Well, and in addition to that, we are now also starting to share spiritual truths that God is showing us each week during our post-service chats. So please join us after this service for the chat. And as I mentioned at the start of this sermon, when our desire to come to church each week starts to wane because we have Zoom fatigue or, or for whatever reasons, I hope we will continue to come nevertheless. 
because showing up in church on Sundays is not just about me. It's also about how my presence is an encouragement to others who are there. And of course, fellowship is much more than showing up in church on a Sunday morning, but it is definitely not less than that. And since I'm on this topic, can I encourage all of us too, when we do come, uh, to turn on our videos during our service? Well, Keith has also earlier uh, emailed uh, to us on this uh, request as well. Well, perhaps it's just me, but I'm very much more encouraged when I see faces on the screen rather than just a name. I do miss uh, meeting in person very much. But seeing each one of you on the screen is the next best thing to seeing you in person. And each time I do, I'm encouraged. And so folks, consider all that I'm recommending here, participate in them. And on top of all these, endeavor to form relationships with one another by inviting each other out for coffee, or meals, but always making a point as far as possible for such encounters to encourage, to spur, and to stimulate one another in our faith. Whatever it is, let us not settle for superficial fellowship here at Christ the King. Let me conclude. I read an article last month about how loneliness is becoming a serious and growing problem in the UK. And I suspect it's no different uh, here in North America. The numbers are staggering. A study showed that 9 million people in the UK are always and often lonely. And that's about one in every seven people. He went on to say that we often think of loneliness as a problem affecting mostly older people. Well, that's true, but research has suggested that it is the younger men in individualistic societies like the UK and the North America that are most likely to be lonely. And this has significant health implications. The effect of loneliness on physical health has been shown to be as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and, and worse than obesity. And it increases the risk of death by 29%. Well, recognizing the magnitude of the problem, some scientists are now asking can loneliness be cured with a pill? A pill that will, at the very least, help reduce the anxiety caused by loneliness. Now, this is a sad commentary on our society today. A society that has largely met the physical needs of its people, but where it counts, our people are still so starved of true community, true fellowship. And isn't this what the church has to offer? the missionary Leslie Newbegin once wrote, I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible for the gospel to be credible that people should come to believe that a power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Well, what Leslie Newbegin meant by this is that it is really the local church that helps the watching world interpret and understand what the gospel is all about. He's basically saying, if you want to look if you want to know 
what Jesus is like, look at the church. If you want to influence society, look to the church. Now, if we are a congregation of men and women who truly believe in the gospel and live by it, we will make a difference in our society. If nothing else, our fellowship with one another, built on our fellowship with God, will bear witness to the world of the power of the gospel to help us share a common life together and experience real joy. Will we step up to the challenge of being such a congregation? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.